You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I get the honor of introducing Steve Wesley. Um, as we've talked about before, the uh, handout and the bio is up on the website for all of the, those of you uh, out in the digital world. Uh, but just for those of you here in the audience, um, let me uh, just uh, remind you, tell you a little bit about him. It's such an honor uh, to do this. Um, he's a managing partner and founder of the Wesley Group, as you can uh, see. Well, actually, he didn't put that logo up. Uh, that bears his name. It's a venture capital firm, and I'm uh, looking forward to hearing their strategy and all about that. But what's really cool about uh, Steve, and I know a number of you have seen him uh, speak on campus because he sometimes is here uh, talking about his service, his public service. Uh, in fact, he's demonstrated that. He started you know, in, in D.C. a long, long time ago in the federal government, but he was uh, the controller, in other words, the chief fiscal officer of the state of California uh, for four years. It even ended up running for governor eventually, um, uh, just a few years ago. And so he's had a really wonderful uh, dual career, not only in, in Silicon Valley being an entrepreneur. He was the senior vice president of eBay uh, for many years, but also with his uh, service to the state as well as the federal government. So without much uh, further ado, let's welcome back to campus because he has a bachelor's from Stanford as well as an MBA. Steve, thanks for coming today. So I'm delighted to be here. And uh, as, as Tom said, I've spent a lot of time at Stanford. I was an undergraduate here. I came back and got my MBA here. I taught on the faculty at the Graduate School of Business for five years. And if you can believe it, I was actually a faculty advisor in Lagunita for 19 years. If you've ever eaten in Lagunita, you know what a deep commitment that represents <laughs> uh, to students. So what I'm going to try to do is something a little different. I'm going to share just a few personal stories before we start, kind of about leadership and how I got to where I am now. And then I'm going to focus a little bit on clean technology, because I really think that is the issue of the age and someone that affects every single person in this room and on the planet, whether you're interested in it or not. By God, I'm going to tell you about it. Um, and then we're going to throw it open. And I'm going to challenge you with some things I hope you will consider for your lives. And I'm going to ask you to ask any questions you want. And people often say, man, I've got some tough questions for you. And I'm just here to tell you, folks, I've run for governor. There is no question I have not handled. Uh, so this is a good chance to lay it all out there. I want to make this a little more uh, personal and freewheeling than some of the other ones. Don't hesitate to stop me anytime you want. So it's a discussion as much as a lecture. I want to start out and tell you that I think in, in almost every family, there's kind of a, a, a story. And maybe it's even a little bit of a, of a lore or a legend in that family that sort of frames who you are, whether it's you know, an immigrant family coming here, overcoming hardship, someone who did something in your whole life. You kind of think, God, can I live up to that? And in our family, I had, uh, through a whole series of circumstances, were Norwegian. And my father's side of the family went to Norway, and my grandfather ran a sugar plantation in the Philippines. And that's where my father's side of the family grew up. And when World War II broke out, 
we were very deeply Norwegian. The family spoke Norwegian at home, even though they were in the Philippines. Nazis overran much of Europe, and including Norway. And so even though my two uncles were 17 and I think 18 and a half, and they could have said, boy, we're sitting out here in this sort of paradise out of harm's way, at least they thought that at the time. We don't buy that. We think we have an obligation to stand up to the greatest challenge of our time, maybe of the century, fascism, which appeared to be overrunning Europe. And so these two young kids got on a freighter across the Pacific, went to Canada, and signed up to be fighter pilots. Because England, as you may recall, was the last sort of bastion left in Europe, and it wasn't going very well. And there was literally no airport left in England that wasn't bombed out. They were taking every able-bodied male and saying, like it or not, we're teaching you to fly a plane and get up there. And by the way, the odds aren't very good. You'll be coming back. And so I grew up hearing these stories about especially my uncle Eric. Some of you know this. If you flew for the United States Air Force, which my father did because he'd already moved here, you flew 20 miss missions and they brought you home because, frankly, it scared the shit out of you. People weren't the same. Just psychologically, 20 missions, you were fried. Well, in England, it was a little different because you were all that was left of the empire of Western Europe. So my uncle was not so lucky, and he flew over 230 missions. He was a raging alcoholic by the end of it, was in jail frequently because the guys, after doing this, would come home. If they got home, would go out on drinking binges. And who would go get them out? Winston Churchill, because they literally needed every body they had left. And if you had 15 guys that go up the next day, that was a hell of a lot better than 8 or 12. And so we'd literally go get these guys out of jail. Hence, you may have heard the line at the end of the war where Winston Churchill said, never have so few men done so much to protect so many. And so this was kind of the story I grew up with, and it kind of made me wonder as a kid going to public schools in Menlo Park, I grew up about three miles from here, that, like, would I ever do anything big in my life? If I ever kind of had the call to stand up, would I be there? Would I even know there was a call coming? And it's been a common theme in my life that I want to challenge you with. You know, one of the quick stories I won't delve on now, but I ended up becoming a student body president here. And the big issue of the day was South Africa. It turned out, who was one of the biggest investors in South Africa? Stanford University. And so we held what was one of the major protests in the world against Stanford University's investment in South Africa. And I was a student body president. And the administration said, you're students. Go away. What, what do you think you know about foreign policy? We're, we're we're Stanford. We're, you know, one woman was on the Supreme Court. It was a heavy-duty board of trustees. Your kids, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, we don't care what you think. And it's one of those moments where you can either pack up and go away or not. And we did. The only thing students can do, this always scares the pants on the university when I mention it, but when you run out of recourse, it gets to the issue of who's really in control. Folks, you will face this issue again when you actually have children. Uh, is you call a meeting of the association. So we called a meeting of association. 
Anybody know what that is? It's where you call all the students, everybody, the works. And lo and behold, they came. And we occupied the university building and closed down Stanford University. What happens next? Anybody know? Well, the media comes, like lots, TV trucks, the works. And before you know it, there were demonstrations at Oxford and Cambridge and Berkeley. And long story short, Stanford eventually changed its investment policy in apartheid. And when Nelson Mandela was finally released from prison and then became president of South Africa, he stood up and he said, apartheid would never have been brought to an end in South Africa had it not been for the international student and labor movement. And it was like, that thing I did, I, did, I didn't really even know it mattered, but it does. And I want to submit to you that there are a thousand little things you can do, some of which you will not even know at the time will make a difference, but they will. And the thrust of it is, you only have one life to spend. It'll sound funny to you, it truly feels like I just graduated yesterday and yet unfortunately like 25 years has gone by. And so your life's gonna go by like that and I wanna submit to you to remember two things. Whatever you decide to do with your life, you know what you decide is right for you, but make it something big. And second, don't take no for an answer. And I wanna really hammer that home because your whole life so far, if you're here, by virtue of being here, it's that you've largely done what they told you to do. I mean, you're not here because Tom said, do this, show up at a certain time, do your papers, and you didn't do it. You're here because you did it. God bless you. And you're at Stanford, and you're about to graduate with a Stanford degree. But a certain part of the rest of your life is going to be about knowing when not to take no for an answer, i.e., because there's something you care about that's important. Which brings us to this. So, I'm involved in clean tech. We've built from scratch in a little less than two years one of the bigger clean tech venture firms in the world, just a couple miles from here. And what I want to share with you is we don't know if we're going to be successful. We think we are. We're managing over, as of this moment, about $110 million. And I've got a lot of my money tied up. This thing better work. But I'll tell you, even if it doesn't, just being alive right now, doing what we're doing in clean tech, is stuff people are going to be talking about hundreds of years from now. They will be talking about, do you remember what it was like when everybody still drove an internal combustion car? Who was it who changed that? Well, the answer is a bunch of Stanford students at a firm called Tesla. And they'll be talking about that for a long time. I can tell you more about Tesla later. But I just want to give you a sense that this is a unique time in history, not so different than being an artist in the Renaissance, where there are so many extraordinary things going on. People were talking about it hundreds of years later. You've all seen this chart. It's tough with the lighting here. This is Al Gore in the back. But you've heard the debates. And people have said distinguished senators, Republican senators anyway, this global warming thing is a hoax, it's not happening, and I just want to show you, that this is a 200,000 year timeline. And global warming, in fact, tracks pretty darn closely to the amount of carbon we emit in the atmosphere. This isn't me saying this, this comes from ice samples. This is data, it is testable, 
and it is becoming uh, increasingly known in the scientific world. The problem's huge, but what I want to leave you with is the rapidity with which it is getting worse is stunning. How many of you have been to China? Fantastic. If you've been to China, you grasp it immediately. I was just speaking at the Googleplex in Beijing, and on that very day in the paper, it said they'd just done uh, the latest studies and that literally, merely living in the city of Beijing was the equivalent of smoking 52 cigarettes a day. Two and a half packs. And that's for every man, woman, and kid. By the way, every 30 seconds, a child is born in China with a respiratory illness. So this is a big problem. It is dramatic what is happening in terms of emissions in China, just with, with the sheer speed at which China has surpassed us. It is a stunning thing in human history. And it's not just China. When I was a kid, there were these 50 other countries we call the emerging markets that economically or for the environment didn't much matter. Colombia, Egypt, Romania, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia. Today, virtually every one of these economies is booming. By the way, did anybody know what the uh, uh, largest uh, sector of the economy is in Colombia? Drugs? Good guess, but no. <laughs> Coffee? Great guess. No? Oil. These are largely oil-based economies, and they're all drilling like crazy to supply Americans and Chinese who are determined to drive four and 5,000-pound vehicles everywhere they go. So that is the problem, and it's not just a US problem, it's a global problem. Which leads us to this. Who recognizes the city? It's the city I was born in, Los Angeles. So let me do a pause here. Stunning story. In the 1970s, California unilaterally passes catalytic converter legislation. And Detroit and all the automakers go to Washington and say, this is absurd. How, how can one state have different standards for cars? We have 50 states. What are we supposed to have different, 50 different types of cars rolling off the assembly line? This is insane. But because Californians were bold and because California is so big, within a few years, every state had followed California. We forced Detroit's hand. Within a decade, every firm in the world had followed California. And for the last 20 years, the air quality in this city was getting better. Bully for California. Until about three years ago. Then the air quality began to get worse. Why? So who thinks the air quality is going to be getting better? It's coming in LA. It's not. Uh, you know, we are doing about, we had been doing about one coal-fired plant a year in the United States, essentially outlawed now. In China, they're doing one to two coal-fired plants or coming online every week. Um, it's a big deal for all of you. And I don't want to pick on China, and we're not in a real good position to lecture China because, on average, every American uses about seven times more energy than the average person in China. They want the same thing we do. This is what we have to 
fix for. So it's a global opportunity. And I'm just going to touch on this quickly. Good news is China, well, the U.S. Congress is still dithering, has already put out a $585 billion stimulus program, a huge piece of it dedicated to clean tech. European Union already weighing in with their clean tech stimulus, and the Obama, a pretty big piece of clean tech. China is also doing some stunning things, and just literally today, it kind of helped make my speech. Obama stands up and says, I've seen the light. We are going to move from a standard 27.5 miles per gallon to 39 miles per gallon in seven years. Extraordinary. And the auto industry says, impossible. We can't do it. We have this you know, overly liberal president. It's terrible. And by the way, it's going to cost consumers. Shameful what the Democrats are doing. China, quietly, is already at 35.8 miles per gallon. And they've just said they're going to mandate, they're going to be at 42 miles per gallon within 24 months. They've already leapfrogged Obama. And by the way, who do you think is selling cars in China? The exact same people. They're selling them here. China's now a bigger market than the U.S. You think the automakers aren't going to... Uh, meet Chinese standards. The only different one really is, is Cherry, which is an indigenous automaker. Otherwise, they're selling, if you've been to China, Audis and Buicks and Japanese cars. They're all going to get with the higher standards. Why? Because the Chinese government knows it has a problem and it's stepping up to do the right thing. So China, I give a lot of credit to. This person I just want to pause a, a little bit on is Minister Panyue. It has been one of the strongest voices in slowing down China's building of coal plants, moving to solar and alternatives. And it's the sort of person, although he's little known here, is literally helping to have an impact on the future of the planet. Just a quick word on Norway, tiny country, but has literally came out and said, we're going to make the entire country, entire country, carbon neutral by 2050. And then they came back and said, wait a minute, that's way too long. We'll do it 20 years earlier. That is a dynamic country. 98% of its energy coming from alternative non-carbon-based fuels. This is a stunning thing. This is the sort of leadership we need more of here, and I'm hoping some of you will be part of delivering. I just want to touch briefly. A lot of people said, what's the Obama administration really doing? Here it is. I don't want to dwell on it, but it's substantial. It's not as much as I'd like to see. It's 100x more than the Bush administration, but I'd submit to you, it may not be enough. Also, I just want to pay a nod to capitalism here. Some of you are graduating. People always say, Steve, this is all well and good. I plan to be a leader someday. In the meantime, I'd like to make some money. Where do I go? Um, I just want you to know that um, these are three areas I think are going to boom five years ago. You could barely find somebody who knew what smart grid or AMI was. Green building materials sounded like something you would only have to think about if you were a facilities manager, you know, wearing overhauls in a building somewhere. I'm here to tell you this is a multi-hundred billion dollar industry. And third, this whole issue of energy storage, cars and batteries is stunning. Again, I want to give a nod to Stan, uh, Tesla because a huge number of the engineers who have done this came directly from here, some of which I talked to sat in this very classroom. And just ponder this. Detroit has taken tens of billions of dollars 
to develop zero emission vehicle. And the best they can come up with is this thing called an EV1. And it could go about 70 mile range and it went so slowly you practically had to drive it in a car in a bicycle lane. And a bunch of Stanford engineers at Tesla have developed a car that goes 220 mile range. That's big. And it goes zero to 60 faster than a Ferrari or a Porsche. That's a big deal. And we're now not only selling roadsters, by the way, the second dealership in the world was just opened right here, a mile from where we sit. They've developed a five-seater sedan. And this car is interesting because it only costs $49,000. So it's the first car that is available to the broader public. And by the way, the cost per mile of an internal combustion car is 50.5 cents. Uh, not my number, it's the Internal Revenue Service. The cost per mile to operate this is three cents. And Detroit can't figure out how to make one. Uh, yesterday, I was dying to tell you all this, I couldn't do it till yesterday, the Daimler Corporation bought 10% of this company and has said this will be their electric drivetrain for the future cars. So we've kind of very quickly moved from an is this going to happen or it's that silly car company in San Carlos, California to Daimler just got a global search and said this is the future of the auto industry right here in California. Again, Stanford. So I'll close here, and then we'll throw it to your questions. Um, I throw this to you. Folks, the long-term health of the planet is at risk. There's some studies we were just looking at that showed the average temperature of the planet could be up as much as 5 degrees over the next 50 years. The impact on the water level of a five-year increase is stunning absolutely world-changing. The impacts on the climate, amazing. Billions of dollars will be made. Billions will be lost. Whichever country comes first will be part of a tectonic shift. Countries will move up that get it. Countries will move down that get passed by that don't understand the wave of history. And the question I throw out to you is, what role will you play? So let me just throw this last slide out to you. In Spain, in the 15th century, on the bottom of every coin, just as a reminder, it said, ni plus ultra. That's what you grew up with. As a kid, every coin you get, you look at it, it says, if you live in Spain, there's no more beyond. We're the edge. You know, there's China and the Middle East and Rome and Italy, and then there's Spain, and that's the end. As in, fall off. The edge end. And all of a sudden, Magellan, Vasco da Gama, Columbus, these people go out and come back and say, folks, you're not going to believe this. There's like, there's a whole new planet, different people, there's tobacco, all these things, gold, it's stunning. All this time we thought, just us. We're, we were the end of human understanding. I would just submit to you. My entire life, we heard one thing. I used to work at the Department of Energy. It said there is no economic growth without using carbon-based fuels. You cut back on using oil, you run your economy into the ground, it's the end. 
the first time in human history over the last two years, California show you can continue economic growth like that and cut your, and cut your dependence on oil. Everything we've heard my entire life turned out to be false. So I come here to challenge you. What new things are you going to discover? I don't care whether you're an engineer, you want to be in the policy world. What things will you make a difference at? What new world can you discover? How can you use this Stanford education to make a change that your kids will be growing up talking about for the rest of their lives? Thank you. So, uh, the part I'm looking forward to, a time to ask any questions. Um, you haven't, how long of a hard stop do we have? When do we? Oh, good God. Well, I may have some filler needed here. <laughs> questions, please. Sir. You said some nice things about China. China gets beat up because of human rights and so forth, but uh, at least they're trying to do something about population control. I, I hear a lot of technical solutions to global warming, but I, you know, I don't see it. People getting engaged with, say, the Catholic Church to maybe modify their policies on birth control, things like that. So, so repeat the question. The question is, you know, the, what, what, where, where is, say, the, the U.S. government or policy <laughs> being set for population control? That's the obvious solution to global warming. Yeah. Steve, can you repeat the question? Sure. So the, really, the question you asked is, Boy, I've been a little hard on China, but one of the big underlying questions is population growth. And I think it's really a function of how quickly the population grows, which is growing too quickly for the planet to sustain, but it's also behavior. If you can modify behavior, get people to pollute less, we could accommodate more people. Now, um, despite my strong resume, I have relatively little influence over the Pope. <laughs> um, and I, I have to tell you, and I apologize to the Catholics in the group, but I, you know, I sort of cringe when the Pope comes out with a frontal assault against birth control and other things, programs that affect AIDS and so on and so on. These are big issues. We have to deal with them, and slowing population growth is something that I think by almost any reasonable standard is something that not only improves our chance of survival on the planet, but reduces the likelihood of war. I just want to digress for a moment. I was 12 and a half, and my mom, who'd gone to Stanford, brought me here. And I sort of grew up in the area, and it was nice, and you kind of heard of Stanford, and there was a speaker here. And the guy's name was Paul Ehrlich, and he wrote this book called The Population Bomb. And I'll tell you, almost nobody talked about this issue. But once again, someone from Stanford wrote a book that essentially defined the modern environmental movement and simply put back in the early 70s and said, if this problem of population growth goes on as we think, it's going to have some calamitous impacts. Now, Ehrlich was badly beaten up. And some of his projections were really overstated. Shame on him. But you know what? This wake-up call that he did was probably one of the most influential things a person could ever do. And this guy is still one of my all-time heroes. And from that day forward, it was like, I've got to go to this place, Stanford. And it was all because of that, that guy. 
If any of you get a chance to meet him, he is a historic figure that we'll be talking about in 100 years. Other uh, questions? Sir. Um, yeah, you were stressing that China is the number one polluter. But when you look at uh, the numbers, not in the perspective of the last 10 or 15 years, but say in hundreds, you could say that China, as well as other developing countries, still should have their share of pollution compared to, to developing countries like the US. So my question is, do you believe that developing countries would share the enthusiasm to go green and to pay for The answer is, uh, the question is, Boy, China may be the world's biggest polluter today, but aggregate, historically, no one's going to catch the U.S. for some time because we've been such profligate polluters for 50 or 100 years. And by the way, how do you get the developing world to say, why should we do a better job when the average American's still creating seven times as much pollution? And the answer is, this is a classic Gordian knot. The knot you can't be untied. For my whole life, the Gordian knot was between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It was arms conflict. And in every country in the world, it didn't matter how small it was, in South America or Africa, the U.S. was wrestling with Russia, the Soviet Union. And they'd say, we're not going to do this because you won't. And we were stuck and wasted trillions of dollars and put the planet at the brink of extinction for close to 50 years. Each side saying they couldn't fix it because of the other side. We don't have as much time to break this knot. And I would just say to you, it's neither that the US is right and China is wrong or vice versa. Both parties are wrong. Historically, US has been the worst. China has managed to surpass us. That's terrible news on both fronts. And so I thought it was terrible when China said, we're not going to agree to cuts at Kyoto. The US failed to even sign it. Folks, this is like my kids poking each other in the eye in the back seat. It's like two and three year olds. And major countries, neither the US or China, can afford to do that. So fortunately, in my opinion, we elected Barack Obama. And he's out pushing full bore to create serious uh, reductions in carbon emissions. But as I've suggested to you, I think he needs to go faster. And the Chinese are doing a great job at increasing fuel efficiency of their vehicles. They're just getting out there and demanding it. Why? They don't have to worry about an entrenched auto industry lobbying against them. But they're doing a poor, so I give China full credit. They're doing a great job on autos, but they're doing a terrible job with coal and electric power production. Why? Because their economy is growing like that, and they need the power. Good news is their government has seeded a ton of solar facilities. And in the next 12 months, this is something I deal with every day. These entrepreneurs who come in, Steve, we've got a great new solar technology. It's breakthrough. It's huge. And it's like, folks, it may be great technology, but do you know what China's doing? There's this glut of solar coming, some from the US, too many venture capitalists like me funding solar companies, but a lot of government-funded programs from China. You're going to see a glut of solar on the market in the next year. It's the best news of humankind for a long time because it's going to drop the price through the floor. Poor time to be a solar entrepreneur, because if you're an engineer, man, you have really got to make sure you're coming out of the chutes with 50, 60, 70% price increase. But I give China credit. They're trying to move quickly to reduce dependence on coal, but they've got to move a lot faster. So the punchline is, 
U.S. has to do a lot more. China needs to do a lot more. Ironically, Western Europe is really paving the way. What I talked about with Norway, that to a certain extent, France, Germany, other Scandinavian countries, they are really the role model for sustainability, and we need to be uh, taking a play out of their book in terms of best practices. I hope, as we go to Copenhagen, that the momentum that Obama creates with some of the things that people like Minister Pan are doing in China will set a whole new tone for how quickly we can change this problem and get away from the sort of juvenile uh, eye-poking we've had for the last eight years. But everybody needs to do their part. Other questions? Sir, Steve, we'll come to you. Tom Kosnick, there is a student-led organization here at Stanford and around the world called Energy Crossroads. Have they, have they pestered you yet? If they haven't, so the question is, you mentioned um, Copenhagen. Yeah. And Energy Crossroads has got um, students on the ground in Copenhagen, Stockholm, Singapore, Uganda, China, India, and here. Um, and building momentum, and they're trying to figure out what message to send to their business leaders so that the business leaders send a message to the political leaders that are going to be in Copenhagen in November timeframe. Um, any advice on what we ought to say? Are you going to sing with one voice? What are some of the themes that you'd like us to play for those? Uh, well, to our it, it's simple. I mean, they need to... S it's hard to paraphrase, but it, maybe... It but, okay, let me try. There's this international student group called Student Crossroads. Energy Crossroads. Energy Crossroads. There's lobbying business leaders around the world because at least in most of the world, perhaps a little less in China, but certainly in Western, the capitalist countries, Business leaders put huge undue influence on their elected officials. I know this. I am one. And I used to be on the other side of the equation. Um, what should they be saying? It's three things. Number one, move to the highest fuel efficiency standards possible. Who has the highest fuel efficiency standards? Actually, Japan. The whole world ought to be mimicking Japan's auto standards. They've done the best job. Number two, we've got to have a worldwide mandate to get to at least 20% alternatives for electricity generation as soon as humanly possible, ideally within five years. That is a big, big deal. That'll put pressure on China, but I am utterly convinced China can get there. Number three, this issue of clean building materials is huge. The materials we build buildings with and the way we construct them, think lighting as well as energy efficiency, has an extraordinary impact on how much energy we use. You may have heard the terms gold lead standard, platinum lead standard. There needs to be universal or international standards on buildings. This is not complex stuff. They're already doing it here. They're already doing it in Europe. We need international standards as soon as we can get. And then overarching all of this is, in my opinion, a cap and trade program. And we're already doing it. And by the way, it's not that hard. I helped take this company public called eBay. And eBay is no different than a cap and trade. It's just it's an auction thing. Pierre developed it in the back room in his apartment. Any one of you could develop a cap and trade trading system. It's not that tough. California's passed one. Again, Europe is a little ahead of us, but those are the keys. Let me just pause on this story again. The U.S. tries to do something bold. Industry and our lobbying groups come out and hammer Congress and saying, you, we helped elect you. 
Senator of Oregon, you were nothing until we found you and we watered you with money here at the American Petroleum Institute. And now you're doing, and you know, we, can, we can't make cars that are that energy efficient. And the joke is, they're already making cars that energy efficient in Japan, and they're already doing it in China, and China's a bigger market than the US. And they're buying the same cars in China that we buy here again. It's a completely fallacious argument, but our elected officials do us a huge disservice. I would urge every one of you, especially your organization, go out and hammer our elected officials. Follow the best practices of Japan and Western Europe. We owe people in those two parts of the world a huge debt of gratitude. Um, sir. You mentioned both private sector solutions to environmental problems and government regulations um, that affect that. I was just wondering which do you think is more important and what's the interaction between those two um, that needs to occur you know, for a viable solution? So which has the most impact, private sector solutions versus government solutions? Yeah, and really like what's the interaction between like regulations and you know, startup companies and things like that that you see? <sighs> So this is a great question. This is something I would love to get some of the fine minds in this room to work on, is what is the interconnection between you know, the people in Silicon Valley, the entrepreneurs, and policymakers? And the answer is almost none. And it's so funny, because I've been in these meetings, and by and large, these people almost don't speak different languages. You know, if you're a government regulator, your whole life is There are no incentives to doing well, and you kind of want to do good, and you've probably never worked in the private sector, and it's very hard to understand how these people work, except you know they get paid a hell of a lot more than you do, and in some cases, an obscenely lot more than you do. And if you're a private sector entrepreneur, you're wondering what's wrong with these government officials. They're not working very quickly. And it's kind of a complete, it's as if they were not speaking different languages, or they were stuck in different cultures when in fact they are. It's one of the things we're trying to work out now in California, frankly, has been a leader. One of the things I've tried to do in my life is work in both government and in the private sector. It's very funny. I, I remember I, I went to business school at Stanford, and at the time I'd been the treasurer of the state Democratic Party. And I'd go to political events, or I, I'd go to business school events, and they'd say, oh, so sleazy. He's in politics. Oh, terrible. And I'd go to Democratic Party events and they'd say, oh, so sleazy. He's getting an MBA. He's a business guy. Oh. And both worlds think the other is the uh, antithesis of ethical behavior. In fact, they were both right. <laughs> uh, but what I'm arguing for is really a greater understanding and that more of you will spend your time going back and forth. Here's some good news. Um, Obama has just appointed a very good guy, Dr. Stephen Chu, former Stanford faculty member, to be head of Department of Energy. And he took one great guy, again, reaching out immediately for this job of allocating. This is the world's best job, by the way. $47 billion into clean tech projects, solar companies, biofuels, technologies of the future. And they said, well, who's going to figure out who to give the money to? And to their credit, they didn't say, well, let's find a GS-15 who's been working in the Forrestal building for 32 years. They said, 
let's get the most senior person we can out of McKinsey in San Francisco. His name's Matt Rogers. He, in turn, is, has five boxes under him. In the first three he's hired have all been investment professionals from Silicon Valley. So this usually isn't the way government works, but this is great news. That for the first time, the president realizes there's a problem, which is recession. You don't want to just start making a lot of new cars or airplanes that'll pollute things more. You want to have a green stimulus program. So they're going to put it to work, and they've actually brought investment professionals in from Silicon Valley to help manage the money. That's cause for hope. That's sort of exciting. I hope the Obama administration will be able to do more. Let me do uh, a couple of more questions. Sir. Um, given uh, the you know, harsh economic times, um, and you know, in particular in California with you know, a, a growing deficit, um, where do you, where do you really see clean tech's role uh, in, in helping to improve uh, the economy? And then I, I guess a, a second part of that question would be, you know, let's say, let's say your, your governor's run was successful and uh, you're, you're in the governor's mansion right now. What would you be doing uh, to implement clean tech uh, from the governmental side? Wow, I was hoping for some tougher questions, but let me start with that for now and we'll... So, let's start with the first one. What is... Uh, just what is clean tech's role in helping yeah. the economy? Well, look, historically, Every five or 10 years, entrepreneurs, which is you, primarily young people, come up with some new breakthrough. You know, iPod, iPhones, eBay, Google, Twitter, and it ignites you know, some huge new need. Guitar Hero, even as big as Guitar Hero. And all of a sudden, you know, sales go through the roof, it employs people, and in theory, it makes people's lives better. We're seeing that now with clean tech. And I'll tell you just the things I talked about, zero emission vehicles, this is a big deal. So to your point, what is this going to do for the economy? We're in a recession. One of the things that jumpstarts you out of a recession, I mean, part of it is consumer psychology, but part of it are products that people have to have that drive the economy. This Tesla Model S, not the sports car, which is historic, that goes zero to 60 like a Ferrari, but this five-seater that's cheaper. We released that car, I think five and a half, six weeks ago in Los Angeles, and we've taken over a thousand orders in five weeks. So we're taking more orders for this than GM's taking orders for Saturn. <laughs> so the point is, I believe that the clean tech industry is likely to help provide the jumpstart that will lift America and hopefully the rest of the world out of recession. Um, you saw today, I don't know if you follow this as closely as I do, but we had the first big IPO. We've had in 10 months, longest stretch in 50 years since we've had a big IPO, and it was a billion dollar company. I love this joke. The company is called Solar Wind. Has nothing to do with clean tech. <laughs> oh, no. Nothing to do with solar, nothing to do with wind. It's okay, it's a software company from Austin. People at UT beat you to the punch, but this is going to reignite the economy. I think the next two or three IPOs, big ones we see, are likely to be clean tech companies. By the way, Tesla and a firm called SilverSpring, it's in the smart grid space, I think will be blockbuster IPOs. Clean tech will help lift the company, uh, country out of recession. By the way, one of the things you should always ask yourself is where are the most IPOs happening? And for my entire life, your entire life, I'm just about the oldest person here with a few exceptions. 
Where are the most IPOs? Are we awake here, folks? The US, every year, huge. California leading the, United States leading the pack, and California leading the US. It's all happening right here, and about a third of it by Stanford grads. Amazing. But the question you should always ask, by the way, always ask in life, is who's number two? Who's behind me? And the answer now is China. China is really closing in on the United States, especially in clean tech IPOs. It's stunning. And by the way, for my whole life, you talk about doing investing in China, and you guys say, well, big market, but there are all these transparency issues. And we'd say, you know, with these, we need these laws and these accounting standards, and the Chinese would by and large say, we don't want to have the US dictate this stuff to us. We're going to do it our own way, and the US can go jump in the lake. But regardless of what the US wanted to dictate, and regardless of what the Chinese government thought was appropriate, there was a powerful force that exceeded all else. A guess? Please, work with me here, folks. Take a guess. It's the force of human greed. People want to make money. Chinese watch TV and the internet like everybody else. They're looking at Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Sergey and Larry and saying, I want to take a company public. But if you want to take a company public, you got to have audited financials. The hottest commodity in the world right now, I think, is a Chinese-speaking CFO. <laughs> if you speak Chinese and you went to Stanford or UCLA or Berkeley Business School, you've won. <laughs> it's, it's like the jackpot. They're dying to get you right now to take a company public because that is how you can make money because the Chinese government allows you. The Chinese government has decided it's a good thing to have companies go public. So all of a sudden, it's changed. Our firm is thinking about how quickly we can open an office in Beijing. And it's a fascinating thing. I'll tell you one parallel story to go with it. Almost every week, we'll see some, you know, a ton of entrepreneurs who are Americans and immigrants from everywhere and some from China. And whenever we see a deal from China, it's almost always growing quickly, just like the other deals we see. But the entrepreneur will say, and it's profitable. I'll say, your company's profitable? You have a startup, it's profitable? I've just seen 90 entrepreneurs. None of them have profitable companies. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? We come from China. There's no safety net here. We have no choice but to be profitable. So we are. And that's the way it is. And that's the expectation. The human beings measure up to the expectation. And I just want to suggest to you that there's really no reason in the world that the 90 entrepreneurs I see from the US of every stripe and color, don't have profitable business plans. We've just gotten, I believe, a little softer. eBay, a company I helped take public, 14 and a half years old now, has never had an unprofitable quarter or an unprofitable month, just not the way we ran it. So I just throw that out to you about expectations and the way you've always been told it had to be. Always look over your shoulder to make sure someone's not doing it better or different, because if they are, you better figure out how to be. And in the old days, you may have 100, 200 years to figure it out. Now, with the internet, YouTube, Twitter, you may have about a week to figure it out. So stay tuned. Um, sir. Um, thanks, Steve. Uh, I've been serving clean tech now for several months. And, uh, 
I was interested to, to start hearing that the, the debate over nuclear power is starting to air again. So I was just wondering if you or your firm have any public opinion on that. So the question is, what about nuclear power? It's starting to come up again. And uh, I, I am neither for nor against nuclear power. I just want to explain something very key. And if you go to business school, you spend a lot of time on this. People say nuclear power is so cheap. It was the phrase, the branding with nuclear power was, it's so too cheap to meter. We'd almost give it away. And the rub is, we have this thing called environmental standards. And it takes about 10 years to build, to permit and build a nuclear facility. And there's this thing called the cost of capital. And it's billions of dollars to build a nuclear facility. And the cost of capital to build a nuclear facility is a huge, huge, huge amount. So I just want to be very specific. Building nuclear is really, really expensive, and the payback is not for decades. Point two. While the operating of a nuclear plant is pretty clean, we still have not figured out to do what to do with the fissionable material. And I love explaining this to engineers. The engineers have sort of figured it out. There's no uh, panacea solution. But you can take the stuff, and you can put it in deep salt mines, crevices in the earth that are seismically stable. OK, so get these three things right. It's got to be deep underground. And there can't be any people nearby, so faraway places, and then no earthquakes. And that's pretty much the answer. And there's only, a couple, there's only really one place we found in the United States to do this. Anybody know the answer? Who said it? Yeah? Yucca. Yucca Mountain in Nevada. And every four years, this marvelous event happens. Anybody know what it is? It's called the... Nevada presidential primary. <laughs> and you know, after all the brilliant engineers have done the work and say, so figured it out, I know this works, here's where we're going to put it, it's miles down, it's seismically stable. And the Nevada primary has come around, and one candidate after other stands up and says, if there's one thing I believe in to the core of my being, <laughs> there shall never be nuclear materials buried in your beautiful state. Any of you seen Nevada? No, I'm sorry. So I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So to come back to your point, look, we already have a lot of nuclear in Japan. We have a lot in France. We've got some in Russia. You will see it start to come back some places, uh, probably in the south, Florida, and so on. But until you figure out what to do with the fissionable, fissionable materials, it's still tough. And it's still, relatively speaking, pretty uh, expensive. So it's just a tough time figuring those things out. Again, hopefully some of you will come up with answers. Let me do uh, one more question, and then I'll provide a, a close here. Sir. In your opinion, what alternative energy solution do you think has the best potential to replace oil and coal? So in my opinion, what solutions have the best potential to replace oil and coal. So first, it's important to realize these are two pretty different kettles of fish. I think on the coal side, you're talking about electricity generation. And I think really, and you've heard a lot about this, solar and wind are both stunning. The neat thing about solar and wind 
is they tend to fit in different parts of the world. So, you know, the warm southwestern U.S., great for solar, Midwest, northern, very cold places, North Dakota, Minnesota, Michigan, perfect for wind. You will see a lot of that. Now, we're still a ways away from doing it in big volumes that we need. But again, the good news is, because of the free flow of capital and a lot of smart people like you, the cost of solar is going through the floor. It's going to have this year. And if it halves again, let me put it in real terms, putting my marketing hat on today, you want to sell solar, you roll in and the husband and wife look at you and you say it's a seven-year payback. By the end of this year, it's going to be three and a half. Psychologically, that's huge. And if you get it below two, you're going to see solar all over. The other big advantage of solar, and I just want to pause on this, is there's a revolution. I like revolutions, as you can tell. We had a revolution at eBay, uh, we're having a revolution in clean tech. There's also a revolution in computing. In the old days, when I grew up, it was all about big mainframes. Now there's a revolution of distributed PCs and technology. Well, there's a revolution in distributed power. Why? Because you can't have a grid that goes everywhere. When you build a nuclear plant, how many of you would like a nuclear plant on your block? Huh, okay. Nobody. Most people don't want a nuclear plant within 50 miles. So you build these things in the middle of nowhere, and then you have to wheel the power in. I think the future is going to be distributed power. I think you're going to see a ton of people like me with solar on the roofs or windmills on their roof. Remember the distributed part of this equation and getting the power near you. And by the way, for something like Tesla, to be able to say you'll never have to pay a penny for gasoline again ever. Or if you put the solar panels on your garage, for electricity either. It will be self-contained. Now, let's move over to the uh, gas part. My hope, and I will tell you right now, you're going to see a move from where we are today toward electric cars that will be faster than anything you dream. Everybody's talking now, it's like, oh, I got this, this uh, Prius and hybrids are great. Folks, it just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to have a car with a duplicative motor, two motors in every one of these things, and a gas tank, and batteries. That's redundant. And I think we're going to leapfrog this hybrid technology very, very quickly. Why did we go to this middle step? Well, batteries just weren't good enough. The batteries were getting better all the time. So you will see a ton of electric cars. There will still be a lot of biofuels. And I think the answer for the world's remaining biofuel needs, interestingly enough, you know, three, four years ago, people were saying ethanol. And now that's not so good because it still pollutes and it competes with foodstuffs. Now everybody talks about cellulosic. So using sawgrass and those things, that's a lot better. But ultimately, these things are still producing a fuel that pollutes. And what I will suggest to you is there's this odd science of what, when I worked for the Department of Energy, they called synfuels, where you can biologically engineer inputs like cane to have the exact same molecular structure as carbon-based fuels, only without the pollution. That is the uh, holy grail. So I think you'll see more and more sin fuel companies. There's a firm called Amaris and Emeryville does it. And the leading uh, firms are right here. So I want to stop here and leave you with this thought. When I graduated from school, from here, there's one thing we're all thinking, which was something along the lines of, oh my god, I've got these huge student loans. 
get any job you can and try to pay these things off. And by and large, you're going to start at the bottom rung because we're all 22. And when you're 22, it's the only place you can start. There were no 22-year-olds running companies when I got out. And there wasn't a VC industry to speak of. There were no 22-year-olds starting companies. And I'm here to tell you that some of the biggest and most enduring companies in the world are started by 22-year-olds now. Larry, Sergey, the YouTube guys, Piero Midiar when he started eBay, the Twitter guys. It's one story after another. There are no 50-year-olds starting these companies. You not only have an opportunity that never existed before, you have an advantage. We're living in a technology century. You, by definition, understand that better than people my age. So how are you going to use that advantage to change the world? I hope you'll do it in a way that's big. Thank you. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.